0: Greetings, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Dickens. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Are you ready for one of the big Totemic singles that we're gonna to have to cover?
1: I mean it's the biggest, isn't it? I mean it is uh, the yeah. it's the biggest selling Beatles single of all time. So, you know, it's it's the biggest in terms of sales, but it's also the biggest you could argue in terms of um, sheer cultural impact you know it changed the world or something like that you know
0: well here's an obvious place to start then does it deserve that reputation
1: yes you expecting more do I mean it, it does and and then again it doesn't now whilst I pull that splinter out of my backside I think it's it's worth saying that it is I think the point at which the beatles explode not just culturally but in terms of how performance and production really starts to 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 go above and beyond because my point of view i think please please me is the better song but i think she loves you as a single is the better performance and has the better more explosive production and i think maybe we'll We'll sort of come on to that as we uh, as we um, as we go through the episode. What do you think of it?
0: Um, I think it's a great song. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's full of um, vim and vigor and pep and energy. It's got um, yeah, just a huge amount of kind of life captured in 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 just a you know couple of minutes it's an extraordinary recording and you know often when we do this it, it it's nice if we can find a bit of an alternative take or if we can you know look at some of the songs that we're covering in a different light or a different view or whatever but when it comes to a song like this there's not really a lot that i can add which is going to be particularly out with the sort of expectations of what you're going to say yeah. about a song like this it, it's a phenomenal song it's a great performance it's not complicated, it's not, you know, anything else, but it it, it kind of does deserve its reputation, uh, whether it, well, well, I was gonna say it deserves its reputation as, as the biggest seller. Um, you could dispute that, I suppose, if you wanted to. But, I mean, if you're going to take, particularly from the Beatles' earlier career, any song which kind of deserves those sales figures, then it, it's hard to argue it shouldn't maybe be this one. It is a phenomenal recording, and I do think it takes all the lessons which have been learned from please please me the album it throws them all together it combines them in a way which i don't think any of it is necessarily unique but it's all just done in a way that just hasn't been done in quite this way and just hasn't been done as well as it's done here so yeah i mean it's a it's a terrific piece of work i I have no hot takes to offer this week i'm afraid
1: so i mean i mean let's let's start with something i suppose contextual um by the time it enters the charts in in late august of 63 From me to you has been hanging around for for 20 weeks. So it's actually, you know, for the Beatles career up to this point, it's quite a big gap in terms of releasing something new. And in that time, the charts have changed from early 63. There are a lot more of those um, perhaps sort of seminal 60s or early 60s groups in there You know, so it's quite interesting. I mean, we've even got some some surf music in there. Um, Surfing USA, for example, has been in the charts for five weeks, hovering around the mid to low 30s, not really doing anything on its way down. Um, You know, the hollies um, are sort of creeping out of the charts, but Searching's been in it for something like 40 odd weeks um, and I gather that that's also a song that um, crops up on Anthology. It may even have been one of the, the Decca recordings. Um, you know, and, and that's fine. That's sort of um, a little bit bluesy. But you are getting more of, of those those acts. So towards the top of the charts, um, we've got Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas at number one, Freddie and the Dreamers, The Searchers' "Sweet for My Sweet," which would be like a Tony Blackburn Radio 2 staple these days, We've got the Safaris and Wipeout, um, Billy Fury. You know, there's a lot going on there that we would sort of say is recognisably early 60s, you know, of that new breed of, of pop music away from the Elvises and Cliff Richard, who were also in the charts, of course. So it's interesting that that there seems to be a little bit of a shake-up, possibly off the back. of. The, I mean, it, it may well have happened anyway that those bands would have come in because they were around... You know alongside the Beatles it's I think it's too coincidental to say that they were inspired by the Beatles but they've certainly been going through the hole that's been created for them by um, things like from me to you and please please me so there's a difference in in public reception and it surprises me as well that she loves you only goes in at number 12 it just seems a little bit surprising it is the highest new entry and I suppose this is still in a time before songs going straight in at number one um, were, were much more common. That comes a little bit later in the Beatles career and then tails off until you get Slade doing it. And then it tails off and it's the jam or the next big band that do it. And obviously it's a lot more common now. But considering how big She Loves You becomes in terms of sales, I was just a little surprised to see well, oh, number 12. Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. And it doesn't even go up to number one the next week. I think it then sort of hits the top five.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of those songs where you can get a sense of momentum building behind it, but it also spends 33 weeks in the charts. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to be, you know, at number one for all of that for the sales figures to accumulate, and that's that's the thing. Uh, even though it takes a bit of time to build itself up to number one and it stays there for a considerable length of time, you know, it, it hangs around for, you know, more than half a year in the charts, which is, uh, you know astonishing i mean yeah no wonder it's the biggest selling video single of all time yeah. you know it's 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 really it's really remarkable um one thing it's also worth mentioning you're talking about sort of the bands which have kind of broken through there um you know a lot of the kind of mercy beat bands a lot of those kind of uh those kind of groups starting uh, making their impact in the charts the fourth week that uh she loves you is sitting at number one uh, the Rolling Stones are at number twenty-one with their first single, so that door is about to be kicked yeah. open as well. So it it's also not only not only has you know uh, have the doors been open for those kind of genre bands who are you know I have been disparaging about Mercy Beat bands uh, on previous episodes and will continue to be so future episodes, but you know it, you know it's undoubtedly it becomes a movement. But out with that kind of movement as well, you also have these other acts who are now going to start to make their presence felt. And and the Stones is kind of the first significant one, which isn't just part of that kind of, uh, you know, genre extension of what the Beatles have been doing up until now.
1: I think there's also um, still that traditional element that's in the charts. And and it's worth pointing out that um, Ken Dodd has entered the chart at, I think, number 50. But also Wink Martindale, Deck of Cards a Song that, that I know from my dad's record collection and uh, listening to his Max Boyce records. Um, you know, he did a, um, a jokey version of, of Deck of Cards that's been in the charts for 28 weeks. Wow. So there are still some, some of those, you know, old fashioned things that are in there that presumably the parents um, are buying. So, you know, there's not a complete change, but you are starting to see um, some some absolute changes occurring. And maybe that's where we're sort of getting those cultures clashing against each other. Um, interesting to think how perhaps whether or not people who were buying Elvis records were also buying uh, Beatles records. The same with, with Cliff Richard, were people buying both? Or were they switching from one to another? Much as in the same way as you know in the early 80s, yeah, you probably were a Duran Duran fan or a Spandau Ballet fan. You couldn't really be both.
0: No, that's fair enough. And one other thing I think is worth noting about the charts as well is um, uh, Brian Poole and the Tremlos mm-hmm. are in the charts with Twist and Shout, um, they being the band that um, Decca selected over the Beatles um, after their <laughs> <kind of laughs> <laughs> misprojection there. Um, and it's just interesting to see them um, indeed signed to Decca um, hovering around, you know, the middle well, the, the upper middle reaches of the charts with a song uh, you know, that the Beatles have already quite effortlessly conquered. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it's a it's a strange time, but it must have been a really exciting time for young people hearing the kind of music that um that they wanted to hear. You know, to actually then see it being successful. Um and then it's sort of quite interesting to think that actually the, the opportunities to hear it on the radio were still relatively limited we're only just starting to get more of an explosion in programming for young people um and and actually it's worth pointing out that of course then what we start to get is more television programming that's aimed at young people and you can see why the Beatles would have been successful in some ways because they're very non-threatening in terms of their appearance so there, there is a performance that um that YouTube threw up for me um, in its algorithms when I was, um, you know, sort of doing a bit of uh, research, and it's one of those in which they're wearing the, those collarless suits, those horrible, horrible collarless suits. <laughs> but they're in suits; they're in matching suits, and they're taking, still taking the traditional bow at the end of the song. But it is worth noting from that, and this is where I enter into the realm of an observation about Ringo, that in that version. He thumps those drums so loud. They're so much more obvious than they are on the single version, where they're not as um, predominant. You know, so it's it's fascinating. Obviously, you know, you've just got the four of them playing in a TV studio, live audience. He is having the time of his life, just hitting those drums as hard as he possibly can and yes folks listeners at home you can imagine I am making some very strong hand gestures at that point to emphasize exactly what I'm saying
0: fantastic and I'm I am witness to those so I can can confirm he speaketh the truth Uh, no I mean absolutely but I mean also I think one of the one of the things about what you're saying there is sort of brushing up something that we haven't much touched on um, when we've been talking about this podcast, which is Brian Epstein and his influence across the band. And, you know, both those things, the, the, those awful uh, Pierre Cardin uh, colourless suits and taking a bow, um, those are both things that yeah. he instigated within the band. And you're right, they look incredibly kind of traditional and old-fashioned by today's standards. It's just not something... It's not something that's going to last, but it's, it's a very clear, very distinct kind of influence, physical, visual influence that Brian Epstein had over the way the band were kind of trying to put themselves across. And you mentioned sort of TV and the influence of television, and uh, you know there was very little in terms of uh, you know pop music on TV at this stage, and you know Jukebox Jury would have been the would have been the fundamental sort of uh, program to try and capture you know the youth audience for the BBC. But we are just a few months away from the very first episodes of Top of the Pops, and and that's going to have um, you know a fairly. Is revolutionary too strong a word? It's certainly going to have a huge kind of cultural impact um, in terms of the accessibility and in terms of kind of the visual presentation of the way that bands are going to put themselves across. And for all that Jukebox Jury is obviously, you know, it's kind of a seminal music program. It's very, very important in the history of uh, music being broadcast on television. I don't think it can hold a candle to the influence and importance of, of Top of the Pops. And yeah, we're just a few just a few very short months away from that and then the first episode, which was broadcast on uh, 1st of January, 1964.
1: To which I will say, uh, God bless the BBC and all who sail in her. Um, long may it stay a wonderful cultural in- institution. It has flaws, but it needs to stay. Right, politics out of the way. Right, okay, move on. You know what we haven't done yet? We haven't talked about the song. I mean, I mean well, that's quite. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's typical for, for one of our conversations, um, and this is where actually it gets quite interesting, because the song itself is actually quite simple and straightforward, and it's surprising actually when you listen to it and you think well, there's nothing really in it, in in the song, in the writing. Though you'd go, oh, okay, that stands out. I think it's all in the performance and it's in the production.
0: I mean, I'm very much inclined to agree, and I think the simplicity of the song is one of the things which allows it to have the kind of impact that it does. Uh, this is where I sort of very briefly have my—I'm going to mention some guitar chords now. Ooh. But You know, it's—it's it's like it's E minor, A seventh, and C. I mean, that's the bulk of the song, and then there's you know a couple of other. Uh, you know, thrown in there for good measure. But you know, the actual the actual bones of the song itself are incredibly sort of simple. You know, anybody anybody could really sort of write or play this song. But you know, they didn't, and and you know, these two young gentlemen did. <laughs> and it's a but it's amazing just how much space it gives for the impact because it's such a simple thing. Everything is hammered. Like you mentioned Ringo hitting the drums there. And like that opening salvo that he fires uh, at the beginning is just captivating. It's incredibly energetic, it's powerful, it's exactly what the song needs to kick it off. It is not in any way complicated or technically proficient or any of that kind of stuff, but it's precisely what the song needs. And that's what the song does throughout the entire length of its run. It doesn't necessarily go for the complexity, but in its simplicity, it's able to kind of have that power and energy sort of fire through behind it.
1: So it's, it's worth pointing out that um, the B-side 2, From Me To You, and the B-side 2, She Loves You, both have melodies that that kind of jump around quite a lot. They're, they're, there's a much greater range of those. And and, and and Yeah, and, and they don't really work. And yet there is a tradition of relatively simple straightforward almost one chord songs being some of the best songs ever recorded the best pop songs ever recorded Uh, see also "Pulp's common people for example and others listener you you will have your own examples but in terms of you know generational songs sometimes you just need that simplicity to as you say allow the space for all the other things to, to kick in so by saying it's a really simple song actually we should um, you know remind our dear listener that it's a really simple but really bloody effective song
0: yeah it really is and what's I mean, we sort of brushed up about talking about the sort of the cultural legacy of the song and, and, you know, there's all the usual kind of stuff about, you know, this kind of music being known as yeah, yeah music because of the yeah, yeah, yeah yeah's <laughs> and this and all that kind of stuff. But you know, that's, it's, it's kind of easy to gloss over that sort of impact when actually talking about the song, but it's, so powerful, the way that those yeah, yeah, yeahs are delivered. It, it If you listen to this song sort of straight off the bat, it's kind of not surprising that this one song came to kind of define and, and indeed name what was essentially an entire genre of music. And especially the split harmony on the, on the final yeah. It just, it has... Just a little thing like that makes all the difference in the world. It's not, again, it's not like soaring Everly Brothers harmonies or whatever, but just the way that the voices interlock on that final yeah, it just gives it that extra push that you wouldn't get from anyone else and didn't get from anyone else. And it makes all the difference in the world.
1: So we should then flag up that um, we're about to say one of the things that everybody knows about this, that of course they were asked by, was it McCartney's father or someone like that
0: yeah it was Jim McCartney to,
1: to yes and you think, right okay well um that's where the kids understand the cultural impact better than um, better than the parents um so you know um, there there is that um I, I you know I think the the yeah yeah yes are, are really um in, are such an important part of this because actually, you know, if you listen to the first um, time, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, ooh, okay, well, that's quite something. But the chorus after the second verse, there's almost like an explosion when they sing yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, it's the final. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, you think well, there's much more energy in what they're singing there than in Lennon's apparently fabled performance of Twist and Shout. There is just life and joy and energy and Pay attention to us, um, you know. In that um, repeated phrase, there, it's it's just so powerful, so important that they they thought that this is their moment, and to to have that sort of celebratory outpouring through an expression like yeah, yeah, yeah is phenomenal.
0: What's also really clear, I think, if you listen to other versions that the Beatles recorded, is uh, how much attention they pay to this song. If you listen to the uh, version which is anthology, if you listen to the version which is on uh, Life at the BBC, uh, any of the bootleg versions, any of the sort of uh, American tour versions when they play this song, every single one is basically identical. They're, they never, ever fluff it um, yeah. you know they're all and even the length of time that the songs especially if you play live you always speed up but it, they're pretty good at not speeding up that much on this one uh, whereas there are definitely other songs A like Twist and Shout's a perfect example where they just blast through it you know it just, it's done and dusted in, in no time at all but everything on this song is pretty rock solid it's pretty yeah. stable and every single time they play it sounds like every other single time they say it which on the one hand doesn't make for the most exciting exploration of live albums in the world ever but on the other hand it does make me think of how much they are investing in this song how much they understood the significance of it um if you take um even please please me even uh, i saw her standing there you get more variety when you listen to those live versions but this one every single time Every single time it's knocked out of the park in the same way.
1: Which I suppose reinforces the point about it being a really simple but really effective song. There's much yeah, absolutely. fewer fewer moving parts. So, you know, you can perhaps emphasize the drumming, you can perhaps do something with, with the harmonies. Um, but I tell you what's interesting for me, looking at um, a few recordings of it, it's the way in which Lennon and McCartney and Harrison deal with the harmonies on this. Because, of course, you don't really get a sense of it from listening to it. But then when you watch them perform it, you have, for the whole song, you've got Lennon and McCartney singing. But actually, it's surprising how many lines Harrison sings on. He seems to almost... so okay. so the first line, he stands back. Second line, he comes forward and it suddenly becomes a three-part harmony. Then he stands back. You know, it's sort of interesting that they took that decision... To, to really emphasize the vocals as a three-part harmony pretty much all the way through.
0: Well, and the three-part harmonies is one of the things, I mean, the harmonies in general is one of the things that really made the Beatles stand out, particularly from their kind of British contemporaries. Okay, so as so I mentioned, the Everly Brothers, and, and you know, that's clear influence in the way that, that Lennon and McCartney put their, their uh, harmonies together. But in terms of other British groups at the time, they weren't really doing that. They're like, there's no big harmonies on, on like Cliff and the Shadow songs or anything like that. Um, and you know, Cliff <laughs> was pretty much the biggest recording artist in the UK at, at that sort of time, or at least prior to the release of anything by the Beatles. And that that's true. If you look at the other kind of British bands, you know, um, the Dakotas don't have that with uh, Billy J. Kramer. Um, you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers aren't doing those kind of harmonies. The Hollies, it is something. The Hollies. That, thing. Uh, Hollies, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, but but as a general rule it was something which made them distinctive. It's something that made them stand out rather than something which was uh, following the pack. So it makes sense that given they've got three people who are, you know, vocally capable of delivering on those kind of harmonies. Sorry, Ringo, you know I love you. Um, But three people who are capable of delivering on those harmonies, it makes sense to make maximum use out of that. I mean, we haven't even talked about the whoos yet, but, you know, there's that too. And having three voices delivering that punch before the yeah, yeah, yeahs, it's another big exclamation mark in the song. And the more voices you can get to deliver that, the better. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it yeah. is it's incredible, but it, it makes a big difference having George's voice there.
1: So then, you know, I'm assuming that people have written about this in, in lots of books, so it's not exactly the uh, the most, um, you know, hottest of takes. But, of course, the groups that were doing those sorts of harmonies would be the Ronettes and, and the Crystals, uh, yeah. and the like you know say the American black girl groups they would be doing that and of course as we know from previous podcast folks if you've been listening for a while
0: big influence
1: on the Beatles huh yeah
0: absolutely absolutely but again it was it was very much a, an American thing and you know a lot of that influence yeah came from from black American girl groups it just wasn't something that was that was part of the domestic market so uh it it It's one of the things that if you, all those songs, yeah, all those songs that you were listening in the charts earlier on, they just don't sound like this. Uh, And you said, you said uh, a lot of the strength of this song was in the production. Um, And yeah, we have to, we have to talk about George Martin as well, because yeah, fuck me, this is a well-produced song.
1: Okay. Why is it a well-produced song?
0: um because well partly because of the incredible limitations of technology obviously we've talked about this yeah. a few times and you know that it's it's a lot with a little but yeah one of the great skills that george martin has is that ability to have um a kind of dynamism to the sonic landscape, that's such a pretentious way to put yep, it. it is. That's quite high um, on the pretentious scale. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your pretentiousometer should be pinging at this stage, <laughs> but, but but that's that's what it is. It's it, there's so much um, depth to the way that he is able to produce the band, and he takes his time. He may, it, there's nothing um, slapdash about this. I mentioned this when we were talking um, before about do you want to know a secret, but if you compare. The Beatles version with the Billy J. Kramer version, it it is a really telling comparison because both versions are produced by George Martin. And the Beatles version is a thousand percent better produced, even though it's the same song. It's that kind of care and attention when he's really putting the work in. And you can see it um, or hear it rather across kind of the lines of uh, George Martin's earlier works as well the stuff that he did with Spike Milligan the stuff that he did with Bernard Cribbins all these records it's kind of easy to be dismissive of them as kind of comedy records or novelty hits or that kind of stuff but if you actually sit down and listen to them not just as the songs but if you listen to the production on them if you listen to the way that George Martin is sort of constructing these soundscapes he's he's using the Oh God, here we go again. He's using the language of the recording studio to uh, to really give the songs what it is they need. And that kind of dynamism, that kind of approach is something which takes a huge amount of care and attention and it's very easy to miss. So when we talk about this song having all this Dynamism, all this energy, this life to it, this electricity that runs through it. I mean, obviously, that's partly in the performance, but it really, really comes through in the production. And it's not a fussy production, it's not splashy or whatever, but what it does do is it captures the absolute essence, the absolute soul of the song, and presents it in the absolute best possible way that it can be presented. And that, particularly when we're talking at sort of this early stage, where there's not an awful lot more than a live performance and then maybe a couple of overdubs, that's an incredible skill for, for somebody like George Martin to be able to kind of um, bring to the, the surface. And I think with these early recordings, because they're not the technical sophistication of Walrus or Day in the Life or something like that, it kind of is easy to miss just how much effort is put into getting this song to sound the way it does.
1: I think it's it's interesting that, um yeah. People have been talking over the last couple of years about the, you know, the attention span of the audience um, of, you know, modern day pop music and how songs no longer have the lengthy kind of introductions that perhaps you would have found in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. You don't get successful pop singles with a, you know, a 90 second introduction anymore. Um, but this one just starts with a bang. You know, it starts with the chorus and there's no let up. You know the song is bookended with the chorus, although slightly differently at, at the end. Um, you know it sort of feels like it's it's kind of breaking and then summing everything up and, and pushing on. Um, you know, but there's the in between. It's just relentless, and I think that's an important difference. Now, whether or not George Martin was involved in in that in terms of the way the song was actually constructed. Well, allegedly idea.
0: it was George Martin that that um, told them to start it with um, the "She Loves You" and Ringo's drum firing. That was that was apparently his structural okay. choice. He told them to do that. If if the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom, uh, Wikipedia, is to be believed.
1: Okay, well, fair enough. Well, um, you know, um, well done, George. Late review there. That's um, <laughs> that's, that's very good work.
0: Um, I'm, I'm sure he'd be grateful to know that. Where he's still around to know that.
1: Oh, maybe I'll tell Giles. I'll find Giles yeah. on Twitter and say. Your dad did good work there.
0: Yeah, he'll be he'll be surprised uh, to hear his father spoken of in such glowing terms. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's one of those things that I think. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a moment, and and that's that's the thing about it. You don't, you know, the word Zeitgeist wouldn't have been used in in 1963, but that's what this is. It's a Zeitgeist moment. Might have been used um, in Germany. Well, I mean, in, as, as a general popular cultural um, descriptive in 1963, um, it wouldn't have been, you know, people wouldn't have described it that way. But that's that's what it is. It's, it's exactly the right song and exactly the right moment.
1: And, and I think that's why when um, The Guardian did their their listing of the 100 greatest number one singles, now, the caveat to that is that they um, they only allowed one per band. So it was effectively for a band like The Beatles that had numerous number one singles, it was the one that they felt was the most culturally significant and represented them. They picked She Loves You. And and you can see why. There are better songs, you know, there's better production further down the line. Lyrically much more innovative than just the hey cliche bit here, gone for the third person, she loves you. we variety. Um, you know, it, there's there's so many more that, that they could I mean. The standard now would be um, Hey Jude, wasn't it? That's the one that seems to be the most um, you know, um, highly thought of, of of the Beatles singles. Fair enough, fantastic song, we'll get onto that in a few years' time, not a problem. But you can see why this was picked for its cultural impact. Now, if we were talking America, we'd probably go, I want to hold your hand for reasons that we'll come onto in a few weeks' time. But this is just that that moment of, of uniqueness, that moment of greatness, that moment of, you know, F you, everybody else, we absolutely know how to do this and you are going to follow in our wake.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I wouldn't have a different pick from that either. I, I, I can't think of any other... Um, Beatles songs, which would, which would have that, that sort of it's worth status, out, I suppose.
1: That She Loves You was in the, in that top hundred. It did only come third behind, I think, um, West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys was number one. i got a funny feeling Ghost Town by the Specials might have been number two.
0: Well, those are both, that those are both top-notch choices, so I'm not going to argue with either and, of those. And also
1: hugely culturally significant songs as well. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I will, I will um, quietly, I will quietly try and Google it. Whilst you now say something interesting, so that my typing doesn't get caught on microphone.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, I'm glad to see that we we too are paying production uh, production notes and, and making sure that we don't uh, uh, we don't fall into any obvious traps. I don't know. I don't know how much more I have to add, other than um, to sort of say that if if there was. Any one of those kind of early songs that I would have to pick as a favorite, then this would probably be top of the pile. Like I said, I don't have any kind of really revelatory takes on it. I don't really have anything which is going to um, sort of strip things uh, bare and, and lead to a radical um, postmodernist reinterpretation of bloody, bloody blah. I just really love it. I just think it's an astonishing song um and and its power is not one that diminishes through over familiarity and that in in, and of itself is an extraordinary achievement I still love it despite the hundreds of times I've probably listened to it over my lifetime I don't ever feel the need to walk away from it for a while and there's been other songs which I've I've love to the very core of my being uh, losing my religion for example that i had to just stop listening to for a period of time because i just heard it enough i've never had that with this song um i still love it now as much as i did pretty much the first time i heard it
1: well uh two things one yes it was um um ghost town by the specials at number two and actually really really interesting again such a hugely significant song at number four donna summers i feel love it's oh, just it's is another song that changed everything um and, and the second point is you missed my little hint earlier when you said uh, zeitgeist uh and i refer to the fact that it probably is a word in german that y- you we could have gone with it you've got nothing else to say about um she loves you well
0: well yeah okay she, yeah she will leave a dick yeah head, okay, okay. My, yeah 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 okay um Fine. Um, yeah. It's a good version. Yes. I, I kind of like it in German. It's kind of cool. Um, it, it says something that the, that the song works just as well that way around. Yeah, it's great.
1: And it also means that not only is it one of the greatest A-sides of all time, it's also one of the greatest B-sides of all time. Because I think, um, was it in Germany, it was released as the B-side to whatever the German is for, I want to hold your hand.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah, oh God, we should probably know that, right? Because we'll have to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: it wasn't in. It got released as an A side in America and scraped into the top one hundred. So yeah, somewhere in America, probably in Minnesota, Beatles fans were buying uh, um, um, "She Loves You" in German.
0: Good. I I hope those Minnesotans are very happy with their purchase. They're probably with a bloody fortune these days. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So I think that, that brief moment of silence there indicates that we have hit the uh, um, the uh, end of the road. Oh, look at me. I'm almost taking over hosting duties. Um, almost hit the um, uh, uh, end of the uh, the road here. Um, and and actually, I mean, what's interesting is that this now virtually takes us into 1964, doesn't it? Obviously, we've got the um, the B side to talk about. But, but once we get through that and then we're starting to think about, I want to hold your hand and what comes next, we're then hitting um America and, and the Beatles and their, their enormous impact on on American music.
0: Absolutely. And something very much to look forward to when we get to that. But I think for the time being, we can probably um, bring this one to a close. Fantastic. Um, You can contact us by mail. We are BeatlesStuffology at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Beatles underscoreology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Please like, rate and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. Next episode, we are going to be discussing the B-side to "She Loves You," which means we are going to be talking about "I'll Get You." Briefly, and of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to guess that "briefly" is likely to be the uh, the running length of our next episode. But however long or however short we manage to go for, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.